Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, John Briggs, Global Head of Desk Strategy, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Bondcast. A busy week this week we had, um, well, we're recording this on Wednesday, so we had some big market moves yesterday. On Tuesday, uh, bond yields were up quite a lot and equity stocks down quite significantly. So um, before I get into this week's moves, though, it's been, it feels like a while ago now, but we haven't done a podcast since last week's NFP print, John. So that was a huge miss versus expectations. You know, um, we had Bloomberg consensus around 1 million, but I think people were even talking about higher than that. And some people suggesting as, as much as 2 million. Uh, and the number came out significantly lower than that. I think I read somewhere, or even you told me, I think it was the lowest Oh, the biggest miss since 1998. Maybe I've got that wrong. You can correct me. Yeah, Um, perhaps even longer, I think. (laughs) There we go. Um, Long time. (laughs) Yeah, long time. Anyway, so, you know, and there's been a lot of debate since then about whether that really is just noise. And we've had data since then that might suggest that it is. And we can get onto that. But where do you sit on this? Is this, you know, an important signal or is this really just a noisy data print that we shouldn't read too much into? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm kind of falling into the camp where it's more of a sign of labor shortage rather than lack of labor demand. I mean, as you said, we've had some data. I mean, just yesterday we had this JOLTS report, which is the job opening and lever. I forget what the TNS stands for, but job openings and levers basically. And it showed that like, you know, job openings, firms looking to hire is at the highest level in, you know, decades. So there's there is a lot of demand for labor. Um, you know, there's lots of issues going around with labor supply and, you know, there is noise in the data anyway. I and mean, you've got all seasonal effects, you've got issues with the fact that, you know, you're coming out of a pandemic, which is something that the BLS is going to have a very hard time to adjust for as it's a, a historic type um, event. But, you know, there's lots of kind of little reasons that we're looking at as to why, you know, labor supply might be um, not meeting demand. And some of it is unemployment benefits. Is that keeping people at home? You know, some of it is probably childcare issues. If you're reopening workplaces before you reopen schools and childcare, that may not matter for a lot of people that can't go back to work. There's still fears of COVID is still, um, you know, an, an important um, item. A lot of the demand is for service sector frontline things that are reopening. You know, like I mean, we, there's still a lot of demand for grocery stores, but restaurant workers, you know, service industry, hotel travel, that kind of thing that's picking up um, but those are frontline and they're not typically the, the greatest paid workers. So if you take some of those reasons, if you're getting unemployment benefits, you're worried about COVID and you're getting a low wage, then the, you know, the motivation to come back could be low. Now, do I have the exact answer of which of these is greater or, you know, if, if, if they're solvable in the near term? No, I mean, I think that, you know, we also have to keep as in mind that just because forecasters thought it was a million and we only had, you know, so, some 200,000 doesn't mean that it's a bad number. It's just that the forecasters kind of got it wrong too. So, um, you know, it definitely was bigger than expected. I'm not dismissing that. Uh, but I think there's some factors here that hopefully will prove somewhat transitory. Um, and we should, you know, and markets are fickle. If we have a strong data point next month, we're going to forget this as an aberration. But it does, I do have to be fair, there is a camp out there that thinks that they're slowing in momentum in the reopening. And this number definitely gave them some ammunition because 
while all the other data out there has been very strong retail sales, consumer confidence, um, you know, today's inflation print was pretty strong, um, you know, surveys, NFIB surveys, hiring intentions, all this stuff is really strong. You know, it things like ISM and ISM services, while again, at high levels are coming off their peaks. So you could make an argument there's a loss of momentum. That's just not where I fall. Okay, so I guess following on from that, my next question would really be, what does this mean for the policy response? I think part of the response that we saw immediately after that um, weak NFP print was people jumping ahead to thinking about what this could mean for more fiscal policy um, and, you know, more uh, money coming in, if you like. And now, like you said, we've literally, just as we're recording, have had that huge beat on um, inflation. So we're talking about a massive miss on on. Um, the jobs numbers last Friday on NFPs and then missed to the upside on expectations on inflation. What does that mean for the Fed? Like, how do they kind of trade off the two? And, and where does that leave the, the tapering discussion, if you like? Yeah, not the best run for U.S. consensus forecasters, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so two things you mentioned, monetary and fiscal. I mean, starting with monetary, uh, as you know, listeners know, we're always in the, in, the, in, this, in the zone where we feel like the Fed's going to start talking in September about tapering. So the market was going to start discussing it kind of in the summer months. We were we were trying to get ahead of that and position for that, which I'm, I'm sure you're going to get to in a minute. But um, market talk had started to move that up to June, that maybe the Fed starts to signal in June, maybe they start to think about or start to discuss in speeches earlier that um, you know they could start to consider tapering or putting it on the table for Jackson Hole in August. You know, I think that now with this number, the payroll number, even with today's CPI beat, that conversation, the high, the hurdle is going to be high there because the Fed has made it very clear that high inflation they expect to be transitory. You know, this is obviously a lot higher than than what the market and probably the Fed was looking for, but I think they'll be patient with that. But at the same time, they're going to need to see if employment is going to pick back up because again, that side of the mandate is really the the one that they're leaning on. They're willing to tolerate above target inflation over time in order to get the unemployment rate down. So at, with the unemployment with the unemployment rate actually ticking up a little bit, they're going to be patient in that. So I think for the, as we look ahead to the June meeting, just at least from here, expect a lot of the same rhetoric from the April meeting, which is, you know, we're waiting to see, it's too early to talk and that kind of thing. So, you know, again, that pushed out some of the, ex, some building expectation. I wouldn't say it was by consensus by far that the Fed might start talking about it in June. We think that that hurdle is very high. Um, oh, sorry. And I was just gonna say on the fiscal side, because I think that's important as when you look at the actual market reaction was on the payroll day is that yields fell, but then it ended up having, you know, af- from the after print move, a bear steepening move. And, you know, 10-year yields were unchanged. The front end was a little bit lower in yield. But why? Because that was, you know, a weaker number. But I think that also spurred, as you said, some expectations that this might motivate that infrastructure spending. It might motivate perhaps more, a little bit more on the fiscal side if the labor market's slowing down. So. I mean, I don't think it changes it that much, to be honest. Perhaps if next, next month is week also, we could see more. Um, but there is a little bit of a building, okay, well, maybe if we are slowing the momentum, fiscal is going to come back. So bad news is good news. Okay, so if we have this um, 
I guess, view now that, that the Fed are going to start pushing back, or at least June will be too early to start thinking or talking about tapering. Um, and, you know, we've talked many times on this podcast about our bearish view and the fact that in the US specifically, we hold that at the five-year point because we think that um, the curve can still price in more rate hikes once we do start to get to this um, kind of taper discussion. Does this push back then your timeline for when you're thinking about meeting those targets that that we have for that that short five-year view yeah i mean it certainly doesn't accelerate it but um you know i think that for us we were trying to get ahead of it and clearly you know this number makes it look a little earlier than we would have liked um but that said you know the market price actually for example we initiated our recommendation to sell our underway five years around 80 basis points and and you know we went down to 75 74 and then ended the day right back from around 80 basis points so and I think that, you know, part of the reason why we chose to do it now was, you know, the entry level and location being that there was very little of that Fed pricing. But we also knew it was going to be a multi-month issue or multi-month as we see when this plays out as we head in towards the fall. Um, but I have to say, you know, that number on its own definitely did mean that we would probably have to wait another month. In other words, what is the next payroll report? Is the market going to get really aggressive about pricing in Rate hikes. I mean, really aggressive within the scale of things. We're not talking about massive amounts of rate hike pricing, but there's just so little here. We think that the the belly is going to weaken as the market starts to look forward to taper, and then rate build in some probability that we get rate hikes in the out years. Um, you know, so clearly that has been delayed a little bit. Although we still believe that we're in that part of the cycle, that we're in that part of um, you know the process where you steepen the curve, and then as we start building rate hikes, start to weaken the belly, and then eventually flatten the whole curve. We're not quite in the flatten the curve yet part yet. That's going to be um, probably next year's business. But um, as you mentioned, we just had a very big CPI report, you know, minutes ago before this recording. And that does seem to be causing a little bit of a reaction here where um, you're pricing in a little bit more of rate hikes in the way. I mean, it's it's still very early after in reaction, but, you know, the belly's weakening up. We're actually flattening the curve a little bit, fives to bonds, fives to tens. You know, so that's that's not a, oh, my God, there's inflation coming. There's a, well, maybe we should think the Fed, if this inflation continues, is going to respond. So it also shows that the market does think that while the Fed's reaction function is going to allow some higher inflation, they're not going to tolerate, you know, this kind of higher inflation. So you do have a little bit of a seesaw here between some of the data of late, um, you know, big misses, but causing a different reaction. Yeah, Sounds like there's going to be, um, well, much more than usual, I would say, attention on, on the NFP print next month. So I'm sure we'll be discussing that on this podcast in a few weeks time. So in Europe then, Giles, because, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of, of um, this podcast that yesterday, so on Tuesday, we saw um, some very big market moves, I think, in core bond yields in Europe. They It was the biggest one day move that we've seen um, probably since the beginning of March and, and stocks were um, significantly lower across the board as well, led by tech stocks. And one of the things that we've talked about I'm not sure if we've talked about it a lot on this podcast before, but we've certainly written many, many notes around and had many client discussions over the past year or perhaps even longer around this idea of the kind of death of of the macro hedge and the fact that bonds no longer really offer uh, much of a much of a diversification value um, in a balanced portfolio. Um, And we've been talking ourselves recently, I guess, about the risk scenario of this kind of everything down. move in markets, you know, bond 
price is lower and, and equity is lower too. And so I just wanted to kind of pick your brains and understand how concerned you really are about that. And particularly, I guess, in the context of a European central bank who is using um, easy financial conditions as their kind of compass um, to navigate them towards price stability, as they say, and, and obviously um, significantly higher bond yields and um, lower equities will um, tighten financial conditions to, to a point that I would imagine they start to worry. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a huge question, this one, but uh, you're absolutely right to say that it's something that we highlighted a, a year ago. And I mean, I suppose it's, you know, it's, it's, it was always likely to be a pretty slow burn theme. But I mean, you know, from our perspective, it's always been one of the arguments that we present you know, when talking about the sort of long term you know, factors that we see driving bonds lower as in yields higher over you know, the next call it year, two years, you know, something like that. And, you know, the, it was always it was always really focused on the bond side of the, the equation. I mean, it was never really a strong argument that um, what needed to correct was was necessarily stocks. Um, now, the idea was just that you know, the 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 case for aggressively continuing to rebalance uh, portfolios. I mean, we see it uh, on. I mean, particularly strongly, of course, in the U.S. With uh, you know, when when U.S. stocks do very well, then there's uh, there's constant pressure to 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 sell to to, to buy uh, to buy treasuries. Um, now, I'd say that that's somewhat less of a of a dynamic in in, in Europe, but there certainly has been um, a sort of over allocation in a way to, um, to to high quality fixed income and you know bunds they've had their sort of special kind of flight to quality sort of you know role in, in portfolios for for quite a long time and you know the idea here is just as people realize that you know not only a priori should correlations be less negative and so that is the diversification value of fixed income just be less um actually that is something that you can see in the market actually happening and i mean as we talk today of course i mean you know, the classic way that this happens is that you have higher inflation uh, pushing yield yield levels higher but um you know, that also causing concerns about uh, about risk assets and you know i mean it's not happening in a especially dramatic way today but it's certainly been a theme of this week and i think that you know, i mean if you uh, i mean you can if you if you run the historic data you'll see that the um the correlations are historically high um and in fact in the in the case of the us they're positive which is pretty unusual and i, and I do think that that's the kind of thing that should continue to to inform i guess you know the very highest level sort of strategic discussions about how people want to approach uh, their investment in in fixed income so you know that i suppose is is one answer um you know, I, I suppose the second answer is well you know to the extent that this is all about inflation i mean you know i suppose that the 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 European inflation story is a little bit less clear. Um, no, uh, I mean, I suppose that the assumption is that if it's happening in the US, then it'll it'll come here for the same reasons, and that's certainly the story that we've been saying for for quite a long time. But I suppose that you know, 
the expectation will be that as long as there's any uncertainty at all, central banks will be the absolute last to among us to to recognize that there really are inflation risks that, you know, that require uh, a reaction against it. And, and, and that ought to keep um, at least, you know, I guess, um, risk assets somewhat underpinned. We talked a lot last week about, you know, switching to our bearish view and um, um, the fact that we're, you know, all in again on on that long term bearish view. And obviously, we've seen, um, like I said, significant market moves this week and, and bond yields significantly higher. Are you now worried that this is becoming a more consensus position? Um, is that the sense that you're getting from... I don't know discussions that you've been having with clients or or elsewhere this week. Are you are you worried basically about positioning in in Bunziak? So it's a, it's a bit of a live discussion. I'd, I'd say not that much. I'd say I think that our client discussions have been more more balanced, and you know, some of our salespeople um, are, are certainly sort of feeding back that sense more than they have done over the year. To date, I know. Uh, is that a worry? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, it, you never want to be the wrong side of a crowded position. I, I don't feel like it's crowded. I just feel like it's more balanced, to be honest with you. And you know, I don't really see why the. You know, uh, I mean. Uh, a moderate sort of short-term focus on, on on this can't be absolutely vindicated uh, by um, signs that our more bearish base case, which just to remind you, means essentially that you know we continue to open up the economy um, in in Europe roughly on the on the time frame that we have in mind, sort of between now and the end of June, middle of July, that sort of thing. You know, that the summer's not going to be a disaster, that the data continue to be reasonably good. And the data has been, been has been pretty good. I mean, the last week it was you know, we had quite a few decently strong indications on things like um, industrial production or sorry uh, industrial orders and investment intentions. We, you know, this week we've had uh, the ZEW in, uh, index from um, for, for, from Germany. That's a survey of uh, investment professionals. We've had um, pretty strong Centix uh, indicators. So you know, I mean, everything's kind of pointing in the right direction. And you know, I think, as I say, firm base cases that the uh, the recovery story is is vindicated in which case uh, i don't see why um, a short uh, a moderate um, build up of positioning shouldn't be something that can be you know, worked out into the to the broader market over time and that you know, doesn't have to be a problem Let's hope that's the case then. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see, you know, this is a, a topic of discussion, I think, for the next few weeks, because it's not imminent, but it will be interesting to see how um, the ECB kind of deals with the, um, I guess, trade-off between having much better data, but also obviously that coming with with the higher bond yields that, that we've seen over the past few weeks. Okay, so... Theo, then, um, given that we have just had this um, big miss, or, well, you know, stronger than expected, I think miss has a negative con connotations, but much stronger than expected US inflation. And as I know, inflation is your favourite subject. Let's start with that before we um, talk about the UK this morning. Um, you know, we, we talked before, we talked this morning about the fact that 
um, market expectations were already very high for this inflation print, uh, and this is coming even higher than that. So where does that leave you on your um, US inflation view? Because you were in those kind of front or twos, tens swap steepness in the US. Do you still like those trades now? And, and what's, what, how has this print take, changed your view potentially? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, I think, the most important number and um, the most important figure definitely for the week. I mean, we've seen obviously positioning in other asset classes and we've seen fear specifically in equities ahead of this print. Uh, the reaction is very interesting. So clearly there is some support for front-end inflation. Clearly, uh, the idea that higher inflation is coming is is vindicated. So there is no doubt with regards to that. The question is to what extent this is a print that came stronger and then other prints in the next months just stay at a similar level because inflation came earlier than expected or does it mean that we are on an upward trajectory? And the price action so far is that it is a former i.e. it was a very specific print that came uh, uh, stronger. Uh, clearly, if you have steepeners, so if you have the CPI steepener view that we had, uh, it's, it's not great, obviously, uh, because this uh, is an inflation bearish trade. And what we got today was, um, you know, an inflation upside. So we, we, we can't win all the times, right? So, but to be fair, what does it mean for the market going forward? It means that we have a level of expectations that is already fairly high. And it means that also the bar has been set fairly high again for other prints to surprise the upside. So this the, the, this is what I keep from here. And this is also why the price action is, is fairly orderly given the magnitude of the upset surprise. I don't remember in the last 12 years that I'm in the market, I don't remember ever such a big surprise. And I don't remember also such a strong price action at the front of the tips curve ever. I do remember the tips market tank by 10 basis points easily. And I can give you many dates, but I don't remember the tips market at the front end rise by 10 basis points. So this is, I think, definitely uh, something to remember. It's, of course, it's, it's, it's big news and it is a surprise and it's uh, not in line with what I've been expecting and what uh, many of us have been expecting today. But I think uh, it's, 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 it's a bit of a mixed bag, you know, so it's not uh, totally, um, you know, a negative signal for risky assets. So sticking with inflation, but switching gears just to think about the UK now, because another kind of interesting price action that we've seen this week is this, um, I guess, correlation between um, UK inflation and sterling. So we've had sterling, um, well, perform quite well, I guess, this week with uh, the risk events of the Bank of England last week, and then obviously the Scottish election over the weekend now being behind us. Um, but also, you know, the global in inflation trade has has been on this week and, and the UK has participated in that. So what are your thoughts around the correlation between those two asset classes? Yeah, definitely. I think it tells us a lot about the validity of hedges and the way that one should regard different hedges. So it goes very well with what has been mentioned earlier um, with regards to fixed income, for example, and, and how this fits into broader portfolios. Inflation portfolios used to be very often hedged with sterling, so short inflation positions in the UK with short uh, positions in sterling. So if you were to have lower inflation, that would happen with a higher currency. So this is how the market did operate for, for at least five years. 
But right now we see the opposite. Right now what we see is support for commodities, support for risk, pretty much pushing sterling high and pushing also inflation expectations higher. So the two move in the same, not in the opposite direction. So we cannot, obviously this this doesn't work as a hedge. It is very interesting what is going on at the front end of the UK curve, because some of those forwards have gone up and they have gone up, even though the UK and the BOE, they are not adopting policies that are similar to the Fed i.e. we don't have flexible average inflation targeting. And yet, we talk about forwards in the UK that in RPI terms will be very, very close to 4% sub five year. And if we are to adjust for the RPI reform in that 10 to 15 year sector, we talk about RPI forwards in the 4.3% area. So expectations are definitely high in the UK as well. And then just rounding off the the discussion so we've kind of ticked every asset class there if we come back to um just nominals in the uk um i want to ask you the same question that i asked giles which is around positioning and you know again in the uk we've had this long-term bearish view which we've discussed on this podcast many times so how concerned are you about uh positioning in the uk at the moment is this short view very consensus now are you um starting to think about taking some chips off the table given the move that we've had or do you still think that we're um you know being bearish is, is the right way to be and there's still a lot further to go yeah absolutely i think the the way that this is probably the most important question i would say for the for the uk market right now so how are we how how has the consensus shifted and definitely this consensus has shifted to the bearish spectrum no doubt and you're right to 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 bring it up as as as, as a point um am i personally more concerned than at the beginning of the year absolutely i am simply because i have company now and others like also that view which makes me very fearful um we target one percent in 10-year yields so it is a matter of call it 18 basis points so i think that this is something which puts us at the moderate bearish end of range so it's not an aggressively bearish view so it is a significantly bearish view but not you know uh ultra bearish uh, and when it comes to the long end, we are even less bearish. For example, 30-year uh, rates, we target there 1.5%, which is around 12 basis points from where we are. So, yes, there is there are there are reasons to be bearish because of what happens to global inflation and because of the merits of fixed income frankly uh, even traditional uh, bond bulls and i consider myself also a bond bull well we found ourselves in a position where we struggle to find arguments like the market so clearly there is a reason for fixed income to cheapen but there will be a lid simply because especially in the uk we know that there will be significant asset allocation flows out of equities into fixed income at some point later in the year so the theme of de-risking will take place in which case there is a lid to how high duration and and, and yields can go simply because well there is a buyer that will actually buy and it's 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 a structural buyer it's a quality buyer so this is something that we need to be aware of so yes we are bearish yes we are uh, a bit concerned that the view is definitely more popular than early in the year uh, but we think still there is potential for yields to go up because the fundamental backdrop is very bond bearish 
Right, sounds like that could be a theme to return to then in the second half of this year. All right, thank you everyone for joining me today. It's a lot to discuss this week and hopefully lots of interesting things to talk about next week as well. Have a good week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.